0: Welcome to History Talk, the podcast that brings together a panel of experts to discuss current events in historical perspective. I'm your host, Jessica Blissett.
1: And I'm your other host, Brenna Miller. In recent months, Russia and Russian influence in particular has dominated the news.
0: From regional interventions to hacking to allegations of interference in elections, Russia seems on a mission to shape world affairs. But what exactly are Russia's goals? How does Russia see its role in the world? And how does this compare to its ambitions in the past?
1: Today on History Talk, we speak to two experts on the history of Russia's role in the world and what the country's goals are today.
0: With us today, we have Jerry Hudson, Ohio State University Mershon Center Associate, Instructor of Political Science at OSU, and Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Wittenberg University specializing in Russian politics and Russian foreign policy.
1: Nice to be here. And also with us by phone, we have Dr. Steve Norris, Professor of History and Interim Director, having her Center for Russian and Post-Soviet Studies at Miami University in Ohio.
2: Hello. Thanks for having me on.
1: Thank you for joining us today, both of you. So our first question we'd like to direct to you, Steve. Uh, Russia has a very long history from the imperial era through the Soviet Union and today's post-Soviet society. What have Russia's goals in the world been for the past two centuries and how have they changed?
2: That's a very good question, one I could go on and on forever about, I suppose. (laughs) But I'll I'll start by saying it's, it's important to avoid determinism. That is to say that the same thing has been happening in Russia and that Russia's goals have remained the same for the past two centuries, but it's still possible to trace um, what one historian once called persistent factors in Russian foreign policy and in government policy over the last two centuries. And in the, in the former, the case of Russian foreign policy, certainly ambition and status as an imperial power matters. And in the latter, that is government policy, a strong, stable state matters. And those two policies often intersect in important ways. Um, over the last two centuries... Uh, Russia's had three episodes of relatively brief greatness in the world. Um, The first is Peter the Great's, actually the last three centuries, Peter the Great's victory over Sweden in the Great Northern War, uh, which made Russia into a European power and into a Northern European power. The second, the Alexander the victory over Napoleon. And then the third most recent is Stalin's victory over Hitler. I, I should also add that. While I'm ascribing that to leaders, of course, uh, Russian troops, Russians, Soviet peoples contributed these victories. Um, What that means, though, is I think there's a misperception of the last two centuries about Russia's greatness. Those are relatively brief periods that Russia had significance. Um, It's it's been Russia, um, something of a relatively weak great power, but one where its leaders desire great power status and to be treated like a great power. I think that's one of the recurring themes and recurring desires of the last two centuries. Um, the other thing I'd say in response to this question, I, I, did, I did preface it by saying I could go on and on, change is the one constant uh, uh, in history, but there has been evolution. We can we can talk about persistent factors, but they always morph. Two centuries ago, or even three, four centuries ago, Russia, when it emerged in the global stage, wanted to be an Orthodox empire over the course of the na- 19th century. Uh, it was much more desirous of being a pan-Slavic empire than, of course, most recently, a communist empire. Uh, with global ambitions and then presently something of a Eurasian power.
1: Jerry, would you
3: yeah, like well, to add? I particularly like his characterization of Russia being a uh, a weak large power. Uh there's there's been at least the perception of Russian power and when we come down to today has been uh much much greater than it in fact is. When I served in the Pentagon for one year, I was in the office of the Secretary of Defense for one year as, as the one Soviet analyst in the entire office of the Secretary. But what was interesting was that when you sort of tapped the expertise uh, in the building, people who were supposed to be formulating policy towards the USSR, uh, the, the USSR was 10 feet tall. I mean, it it was this kind of looming mass ready to assault the United States and U.S. interests. And uh, the result was, you know, obviously the Cold War. And both sides could bring some pretty concrete evidence to bear about why the other might not wish it well. But nevertheless, I think even down until now, we have this sort of exaggeration of how strong Russia is.
0: Well, that's a great transition to our next question. What are Russia's current foreign policy goals in the world? How do these goals line up with Russia's long-term international agenda?
3: It's really interesting to try to boil that down. Steve really encapsulated that, they, that Russia wants mutual kind of respect. Uh, it wants to be handled as an equal partner in the world, particularly equal to that of the United States. It it wants non-interference in, uh, in its politics inside. Those are kind of three basic uh, goals that Russia would like. And it's frustrated because people aren't treating it as an equal power and appears to me at least to be reacting. It's a, it's a very reactive policy rather than sort of initiating things. It reacts. Um, Putin appears to be a very pragmatic politician when it comes to foreign policy. Uh, And uh, he, he responds to events, doesn't initiate a lot. For instance, in Syria, Obviously, the Obama administration wasn't going to get involved there. And so he uh, was able to actually commit some Russian forces to that conflict. And it's not the response of a strong, huge, strong superpower, really. It's a very kind of careful, relatively risk-free approach to international relations.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. I think you could see some of the major actions recently of Russia and Putin in particular as reactive, even in Ukraine and Crimea, certainly in Syria, as Jerry alluded to. Um, to, to go back to the original question and to, to add to what Jerry said, I really think it's, you can't overestimate enough just how much Russian foreign policy is, is aims toward recognition and, and respect, a certain status, that is, Russia and its leaders want to be treated as a great power. Even if, as we've, I think Jerry and I have both agreed, it's been a relatively weak great power over time. It's still, it's still a large one. Uh, here, here's where size matters and image matters. Um, and I think too, in terms of the goals, the current goals, and how they line up with long-term inter- Russia's long-term international agenda. Putin's 2007 speech in Munich, I think, is still a, a cornerstone here. That's where he um, he gave a speech. I can't remember exactly to to the to the body. Um, but all the European leaders were there, and he really criticized what he called the U.S. monopoly uh, in in the globe and the U.S. monopoly in using international force. I think he characterized it as a hyper use of force in the world. And he lamented the unipolar world that that he saw as, as existing at that point and really wanted to break that, uh, make it a more multipolar world with more people participating. And at the end of that speech, it was a, you know, well, widely reported speech he reminded listeners that Russia had a thousand-year history that Russia had always had its own independent foreign policy and he wanted to recapture that and and I think if we look back that's 10 years now that's been the the essence of the of Putin's foreign policy agenda
1: so are Russia's foreign policy goals today primarily the result of the views of president Vladimir Putin alone or Does it seem that these are part of this longer tradition of Russian geopolitics? Um, And then also, are these goals ever shaped by domestic issues, or are they primarily reactions to events that are taking place on the the global scale?
2: Well, certainly, Russia's foreign policies aren't a result of Putin alone. um, In in a couple of important ways. I mean, first of all, it's always important to remind ourselves something we learned or thought we learned during the Cold War. uh, Russian leaders, Soviet leaders, don't act alone. They do have advisors. uh, Putin's Foreign policy advisors, ministers of foreign affairs have been very influential. Sergei Lavrov is, of course, extremely influential now. Um, I, I also think, too, it's in the way that Putin's been depicted in recent works that are quite good ones. Here I'm thinking particularly particular of, of Mikhail Zigar's book, All the Kremlin's Men. Um, Putin's almost an accidental king surrounded like a, by a Medici-like court. And it's, it's also at the same time, a, I mean, this may sound contradictory, but it isn't, uh, or at least I don't think so, Putin has managed to build a strong state where personal rule can thrive, and therein lies the conundrum. Putin has a lot of power. He's the only feasible ruler in Russia. He certainly sets the agenda, but he does have advisors and listens to them. The the question about whether or not Russian foreign policy is aimed at domestic, I think absolutely. Under Putin, uh, we've seen in Russia a rise of patriotism. Putin actually called patriotism the, the Russian idea, the Russian national idea certainly a rise of nationalism. And if we think about actions in Crimea and in Syria, ones that Jerry referenced, uh, those are as much domestic-oriented as international-oriented. They have an international audience, too. Um, but they're meant to to uh, supplement, to, to build up this notion of patriotism, that is, Russia's acting patriotically. Russia and Putin are acting in the tradition of a thousand-year tradition of Russian history. Um, I'd I, I just maybe point out one particular episode, those of us who follow Russia probably followed the, the aircraft carrier Admiral Kuznetsov, which was the, the only aircraft carrier in the Russian fleet that was sent on this big mission through the North Sea all the way uh, to help out in Syria. Experts, of course, all agree that it, it accomplished absolutely nothing in terms of its military objectives, but it accomplished quite a lot in terms of its PR objectives. It was on the Russian news a lot, it was seen as Russia acting. The sailors on board were helping in Syria, and it was retired officially after its Syrian mission and greeted with all these state affairs. Everyone got medals. There was a big ceremony for the Admiral Kuznetsov.
3: Yeah, right. The Kuznetsov is a really interesting case study. To put it uh, rather clearly, it's, it's really kind of a rust bucket. Uh, it can't uh, sail anywhere without a couple of repair tugs along with it uh when it was retired it was retired not because it had done such a good job as steve mentioned quite correctly but because it it really just couldn't operate very well anymore they had they had several accidents of aircraft trying to take off from it and here's another point we in the west we talk about perceptions we in the West looked at this, and it was it was talked about in our best newspapers, like the New York Times. Like, oh, the Russians have an aircraft carrier there, and of course, when we think aircraft carrier, we think you know these, these enormous uh, vessels that can carry ninety planes and have six thousand sailors on them. The Kuznetsov uh, actually carries about nine, and it has it can have about three thousand sailors on it. Uh, but it really didn't didn't do very much, and and was able to operate uh, the way it did off of Syria only because there was no countervailing force to prevent and,
2: it. And from. I think that's the important thing. I mean, it's it's, it's worth noting too. The Admiral Kuznetsov, uh, one thing it became infamous for, even in Russia, in terms, in terms of memes, was it still operates on diesel fuel. So it, diesel fuel, so it turned <laughs> up enormous black smoke, which made it look like it was breaking down. And in fact further reinforced the idea that it is this big tub of, you know, a bucket of, of almost rusting screws. But it, it was incredibly significant as a PR exercise, as a, as kind of proving that Russia's doing something in an area, as Jerry said, when it seemed as though no one was able to do anything.
3: And and very much, you know, the U.S. media and the Western media has aided and abetted. It, it, it appeared that, you know, there's his Russian might. When you know we take a look at sort of standard measures of international power, Russia doesn't stack up very well, um, except for the fact, of course, that it's a nuclear power. Uh, but right when we take a look at at economic power, um, conventional military power, manpower, and put these in the context of of Russia's geographical vulnerability, you've got a country that that only appears to be strong, but really, at least by many measures, is objectively quite weak.
0: One of the more prominent recent actions of Russia was in Crimea and its involvement in the civil war in Ukraine. These were viewed as a big change in Russia's assertiveness in the world. Why was Russia so aggressive in taking Crimea? What is the longer-term relationship between Russia and Ukraine? And was the Crimean takeover an actual shift in Russian policymaking? Jerry? Jerry?
3: Actually, uh, my thesis would be that the taking of Crimea was just kind of a reactive event. It was there. Putin was feeling besieged. It was easy. My goodness, it was easy, Crimea. I mean, the the little green men, these are the Russian troops without insignias on them, uh, simply, you know, walked in and took over. Um, and it was pretty easy because the population there, I think, is about 60% Russian. And there were a lot of sympathizers um, there. So when the little green men showed up, it was pretty much pretty much over.
2: Just, just quickly to, to build on what Jerry said, I, I think it, if in part the Crimean uh, annexation was reactive in the sense that it was Putin's response, whether we agree with it or not, a decisive response, at least in the way it was packaged to the Russians. Um, to the Euromaidan crisis in Ukraine, which is something Putin fears quite a lot. And also, even, even more specifically, uh, it happened right after the Sochi Olympics. And if we think about that episode of the Admiral Kuznetsov, uh, Putin very much wanted the Sochi Olympics to kind of be a calling card, a new announcement of Russia's might, its ability to put on a great show. Uh, personally, he was quite offended by the way in which often the Sochi Olympics, uh, ahead of the time, were, were, was mocked in the, Russian, in the Western media all the reports of toilets not working in the apartment, so on and so forth, the snowflake that didn't open up in the opening ceremonies. <laughs> um, so in a sense, this was Putin acting and reacting to, that, to those perceptions. Now, the longer-term history, as Jerry alluded to, is, is an intense one, a very long, complicated one. Um, I'll just hit a couple points. Uh, one, there's kind of a mythic way that Crimea operates in the Russian consciousness that goes back all the way to Kievan Rus, the first civilization built in that area of the world and even more specifically crimea is where uh, supposedly prince vladimir who adopted orthodoxy as the state religion in, in kiev and russ was baptized in crimea so there's this sense that the heart of russian civilization the heart of slavic civilization not only is in that part of the world but even more specifically in the crimean peninsula uh, more recently to, to jump ahead <laughs> hundreds of years crimea of course Uh, once it was annexed by Catherine the Great and became part of the Russian Empire, was home to the the Imperial Russian Navy in Sevastopol. And of course, uh, we all know, or we should know, the Crimean War fought between 1854 and 1856, where Sevastopol was bombarded, and where, again, in the Russian national consciousness, even though they lost the war in Russia afterwards, the heroic defenders of Sevastopol became widely known, widely admired, widely promoted as examples of true Russianness. Um, and then again, during World War II, Crimea was bombarded, Sevastopol was bombarded. So there's this multi layered history where it's about sacrifice, it's about faith, it's about intimate connections, or at least perceived intimate connections to this long thousand year history of Russia. Um, I, I will add here, too, there's Konstantin Plashakov has written a recent book about, called The Crimean Nexus. And my favorite chapter in it is where he describes Crimea almost as a fetish in the Russian imagination. And it's a fetish in multiple ways. It's a place of sacrifice, it's a place of beauty, and it appeals to virtually anyone in Russia, whether you're on the left or right of the political spectrum. And so that was, as Jerry said, it was kind of an easy decision, an easy reactive decision for Putin to annex it. It played well at home.
3: It sure did. Uh, over, well over 80%, 85% maybe, of the populace approved of taking Crimea, and that just proves Steve's point.
2: There was part of the question that was asked about whether it marked a, a change, and, and in many ways no, because Russia had done something similar for similar reasons in 2008 in Georgia, to reincorporate peoples that were, had a historic affinity, at least in the way Putin pitched it, toward the Russian state over time. And to counteract Western encroachment in the form of NATO expansion, possible NATO expansion into Georgia. And that also, this five day war with Georgia, was popular, played well at home, has still uh, kind of bequeathed an unsettled situation in Georgia. Uh, there's lots of parallels there. So actually, 2014 in Ukraine and Crimea is a kind of echo of 2008 really? yeah. in Georgia, South Ossetia.
1: Well, uh, let's turn a little bit now to Russia's relationship to the West. Um, One of the prominent themes in Russian history has been its relationship with the West. So, Stephen, would you be able to describe that relationship and whether it's changed over time? And then how do Russians view the West today?
2: Yeah, another big question (laughs) that I could talk a lot about. Um, Well, I think the the short answer is that uh, Russia, and here you almost have to put that into quotes because that is from uh, all the way back, even to Ivan IV, that is Ivan the Terrible's Muscovy, to the present, um, has always seen the West in, in one way as a measuring stick uh, against which to compare uh, the state in Russia, uh, but, and, and at the same time something to be emulated and something to be rejected, and and that's a, a persistent factor. I don't think that has changed in in the grand scheme of things over the last two centuries, but of course it's it's evolved over time, and I and I think today there's almost kind of a. A chip on the shoulder anger about Western views of Russia that russia's not appreciated enough um, that its status isn 't understood enough that its history isn 't understood well and that, that, that I guess what i 'm saying is that presently we find ourselves in a situation where on the one hand Russia wants to be seen as part of the West or part of a European order on the other hand it wants to be seen as not quite like the West, uh, and that sentiment is a little stronger the latter one and part of a new Eurasian order, and that that the way that that second half of this of this dual notion of the West and Russian culture uh, is more prominent now is because of this perceived uh, denigration that the West seems to have for Russia. I could give a couple of examples that spring in my, sprung to my mind while I was talking. Uh, one is, in terms of Syria, you know, I remember John Kerry reporting that when he got to the table in Vienna, I think it was, to talk to Lavrov about Syria, the first thing he was greeted with was the long list of grievances that Russia had in terms of what they thought the West had or hadn't done in relation to Russia. It was almost like a Festivus. If you watch Seinfeld, I hope listeners out there watch Seinfeld. Um, <laughs> th- and that's, that, that's, that's something that, um, when Rex Tillerson was preparing to go to Russia for the first time, he was, he was told to expect a long list of grievances. That is how the West has mistreated Russia. The second thing actually sprung to mind because yesterday was D-Day and I was reading online and other reports, all kinds of reports about D-Day a significant battle, of course, when my grandfather fought in. But it's always narrated in the West as a, you know, this decisive turning point in World War II. And I think Russians feel justifiably uh, aggrieved at that idea. That is, it seems as though Stalingrad and the Eastern Front, which were the real turning points in the European theater of World War II, are not understood. And that's something that always comes to the table, always comes to the fore when Russia tries to see itself as part of or not part of the West. Um, the other thing I'd throw in... Um, you know, the current Russian state has inherited a certain view of the West constructed during the Soviet period. And that was one where very clearly the Soviet Union saw the main enemy of the Soviet Union as the West. It was surrounded by enemies, surrounded by democracies and capitalist countries that were always threatening in the way it was presented to the Soviet Mm -hmm. public to undermine this attempt to build this utopian socialism. Uh, And so I I think that, you know, again, we don't want to see too strong of a parallels, but that's an important inheritance that I think the current Russian state plays on.
3: Yeah, and uh, something that just came to my mind also as you were uh, talking, Steve, is that quote the West unquote from the Russian point of view can be divided into the United States and then Western Europe. And I think part of uh, part of uh, Russian policy today is to see what what kind of uh, activities it can take to sort of split split off some of these countries in the Western alliance from the United States in order to gain influence there. Um, they have done such things as funded Marine Le Pen uh, in the French presidential elections. Didn't, didn't work out too well, did it? And uh, uh, they've been uh, making... Uh, uh, overtures towards uh, Italy. Uh, they've been working uh, with um, trying to attract Bulgaria. Um, they've done lots of other, other things to see, to try to see what they can do to, to break up um, the West.
0: Well, speaking of grievances, Russia seems to play a large role as a villain in the minds of many Americans. Why has Russia come to play this role? Is the Russian-American relationship and antagonisms a result of the Cold War or of newer post-Soviet issues?
3: Well, first of all, Russia seems bad to us, and probably because, I mean— Many people in the United States are still thinking in Cold War terms. And this includes decision makers in Washington, most of whom were brought up during the Cold War. And so they still think of this us versus us versus them idea. And so that's, that's one thing. So there's a strong bias there. I'll bet many Americans still think that Russia is a communist country. I know that oh, yeah, no, the, the
2: term the, the, the reference to communism or the Soviets still happens all the time
3: I know it. and, uh, but it's but it 's true. I mean for another reason there 's also been the interference uh, or attempts at interference in the u s elections in two thousand and sixteen. Um, as an example of what some people call hybrid warfare or you can call it nonlinear warfare i don 't like the term warfare because there 's no kind of kinetic forces being being used anywhere but the Russian cyber power has been brought to bear uh, on the United states and as probably our listeners know uh, there 's been a recent leak from a from a national security agency uh employee. Uh, that says that Russia actually tried to uh, influence voting machines in the United States, though unsuccessfully, I understand. But, I mean, these attempts are, you know, don't generate very good publicity in the United States. Uh, One, and two, um, you've got possible collusion, um, although I'm I'm not so sure that there's a there, there, yet, but possible collusion between um, some members of the Trump campaign. And the russians uh, again this this may prove to be to be no, to be nothing we'll just have to wait and see but I mean all of this generates pretty pretty bad image, and so these are real real incidences and uh, I've read the entire uh report by that was put together by the um, CIA and the FBI and a number of other intelligence agencies, and I'm convinced the Russians tried, but no one should be shocked. What's shocking is, is that so far, given the evidence that they did try, uh, there's been no national policy coming out to help protect uh, U.S. computers at the federal, state, and local levels.
2: Steve? Right. Jerry, so Jerry provided some of the contemporary points. Uh, I'll, I'll For History Talk listeners, I'll, I'll <laughs> add a little more in terms of the historical context about the way that... Russia plays a large role as villain in the minds of many Americans. Uh, it, it's kind of a mix in my mind, there's, you know, just just like the Soviets and even prior to the Soviets, uh, Russian officials, Russian cultural figures built an image of the West and there's something a little bit different from Russia, but something to be both emulated and feared. Uh, it's also true uh, for centuries now, the West has built an image of Russia. Uh, once Ivan the the terrible country opened up, and foreign travelers began to go to Russia. They they began writing reports that, that changed very little across time. As Russia is this Oriental despotic Asian country, and that's always those have always been terms saddled on Russia and the Russian state. That it's not it's not really the West. It's not like us, and they always tend to uh, to offend many Russians, especially Russian state officials. And then you throw in, as Jerry referenced, uh, during the Cold War, the way in which the commies became the main villain, and that Russia and the Soviet Union were almost synonymous, and that that previous mental historical baggage was brought to bear uh, on the Soviet Union, you have a, a perfect storm of villainness, ness uh, And it's also worth noting that in the cultural Cold War, it was, was incredibly asymmetrical. If The geopolitical Cold War was not always asymmetrical. The cultural Cold War was. There were many, many, many more movies, many more books, many more TV series in America that depicted Russians and Soviets as villains than in Russia and the Soviet Union, you know, Rocky four, <laughs> red dawn, all those sorts of red things. Dawn, there, there weren't, yeah, that was a classic. Yeah. There weren't Soviet parallels to those movies. So, you know, we all grew up as the Russians as an enemy or as the Soviets as an enemy. And that, that sort of built on the previous centuries of baggage about Russia as this Asian oriental, exotic despotic place. Um, and I think it more or less means that today, at least culturally speaking, but also in terms of the way uh, some of the, the political aspects that Jerry was just talking about, Russia's a, a safe villain in the, in the eyes of, the, of Americans.
1: So uh, we want to make sure that we talk about what I think most of our listeners will probably be wondering about, which is the elections. Um, and so recently, Russia has been accused of meddling in the democratic politics of other countries, most notably the United States and France. So one of the questions that we're curious about is, is there a longer tradition of these types of interventions in foreign politics? Is this just kind of what Russia does, or is this different or unique? And then what interest does Russia take in foreign elections? And Steve, we'll direct this question to you first.
2: Yeah, I um, mean, I was... Wrote a piece that will be on Origins, which is kind of your sister. Uh, it's the sister website of History Talk. There's there's shameless self promotion. Thank you um, about, <laughs> about the view of the West constructed under the in the Soviet period, especially in Soviet political cartoons. And one of the things I discovered in writing that piece that is a direct answer to your question is the the work of a political scientist at UCLA named Dov Levin. I think his name is Levin L L E V I N, and he actually studied and posited that between 1946 and 2000, the United States and the Soviet Union and Russia interfered in one out of every nine competitive international executive elections, 117 times total. Uh, so in other words, it was a part and parcel of the Cold War. Um, and they, you know, this sort of interference has a wide range, according to Levin, from um, he talks about the way the Soviets uh, gave money to candidates they preferred. Uh, one of the typical American ways to interfere was to, to threaten to withhold aid if a certain person was elected. So that's sort of soft interferences, but it it's was a fairly typical practice. Uh, what's new now is the way that the hacking cyber warfare part of it. And that seems to be more threatening, I think. Um, it, as far as why it happened, it's just simple foreign policy objectives. In democratic elections, if you're Russia or the United States, oftentimes there are candidates that you would prefer Uh, And in the case of the American election in 2016, meddling or not aside, uh, there's no doubt Russian leaders preferred Donald Trump to Hillary Clinton. That's a a no-brainer, really, just like they preferred Le Pen to Macron in France, because Le Pen and Trump, in their pronouncements, overlap a lot more with Russian foreign policy objectives. And And that's more or less the way it operated during the Cold War, too. You certainly saw people that you'd rather have in power, and that if you could... Do something to influence or interfere in that to bring about that result. That would only help your own foreign policy objectives.
3: Yes, Steve. It's the it's the breadth and depth of what has just happened. I think that that makes right. it kind of re, uh, remarkable.
2: It, it cuts the other way too. That is, uh, uh, those 117 interferences. You know, everyone said, "Wow, that's this is Levin's report," uh, because they weren't widely reported. Now we know about these things or think we know about these things. Certainly know about part of these things almost instantly because of the way things are reported, the 24-hour news cycle. Um, and it, it produces a greater fear, I think. It seems like a greater threat. And it might be. I don't, I don't want to suggest that it isn't, that we shouldn't be afraid or shouldn't be worried about
3: Russian interference in elections. No, Nobody should be surprised. But what bothers me, and I'm re- repeating what I said before, is that there's been really no effort from the U.S. government to try to stop this stuff from, from happening. I think what's needed, and I'm going to put a plug in for my own idea here, if you wouldn't mind, is that we need something equivalent to what President Eisenhower did with the uh, interstate highway system, uh, which is uh, kind of a a National Defense Highway Act, but for the Internet, National Defense Internet Act from Washington, D.C., to put significant money towards protecting computer systems in this country i mean there is something we can do about this this is the one way that this relatively uh weak power russia uh has been able to to exert influence and cause consternation obviously but there are defenses against this it's not like we, we just sit here and have to take it Right. And
2: some of the, you know, reading the reports, too, it's amazing to me. It's, I mean, in 2017, 2016, 2017, that so many of the breaches, that is the the hacking, took place because someone opened an email attachment. I mean, haven't we learned not to open an email attachment from from an email you don't know who, who, who was the sender? And then the other thing, too, of course, is uh, the fake news that... That Russia engages in and it produces, you know, I don't know if we could have a national act that would require us to think a little more critically about where <laughs> news is coming from and how we should understand it. But gosh, that would be quite helpful.
3: I'm really glad that Steve brought up the subject of fake news. Some of my colleagues at the Mershon Center uh, have collected data on this very topic and are also also conducted surveys in France and are, uh, I think, onto conducting surveys in Germany and in England for their elections to look at the impact of fake news. But what they've been able to report so far from their survey research here in the U.S., uh, in taking a look at voters who, who voted twice for President Obama in 2008 and, and, uh, and 2012, and then switch their vote to somebody other than Hillary Clinton, there is a there is, there is a strong correlation of point four seven of people who read fake news and switched their vote like this right uh that's that's that is a str- much stronger correlation between between the belief in fake news and their party preference their religion their gender anything
2: and it's worth noting many of those fake news items that change votes and at least as far as i know there's no evidence that those a russian created phenomenon those are Infowars and alex jones of Infowars. wars anyway yeah. um creating these ideas and, and nor was the whole Burser controversy which is a conspiracy theory about president right. uh, obama yeah. that was that donald trump uh, uh, helped to foster and certainly popularize uh, that's not a russian invention right so it, it, you know if anything we ought to see russian interference in elections in a, in a wider context as a kind of media landscape or fake news or these kinds of reports and conspiracy theories proliferate in america on facebook and online and where Russian interference is part of that it's part of this noise created um, but not the only correct and, and oftentimes not the primary uh, influential noise and that's, that's not to say that we shouldn't understand that uh the russian hackers are quite sophisticated there, there seems very little doubt that oftentimes hacker groups work with the Russian government or work at their behest. It's just a matter of how we interpret that um, vis-a-vis, you know, its impact in any particular country, including here. You know, what matters at the end is maybe the pizza parlor story more than fake news created out of Russia or hacking out of Russia.
0: Well, Russia often seems to back countries or regimes that are considered pariahs by other people in the world. Why is that? And who are Russia's main allies in the world today? And has it always been this way?
3: Well, yeah, <laughs> Russia, Russia backs pariahs. I suppose this is a measure of Russian um, weakness because they don't have a strong alliance system like, well, compared to the United States. There, there really is no Russian version of NATO, although they have tried to make one uh, called the CSTO. For one reason The Eurasian
2: Union between Belarus and, and right. Kazakhstan hasn't really amounted to much either. There was a lot of no. hoopla about that being something.
3: No, every, every time Russia seems to want to do this, uh, to create an international organization that it can dominate, it comes up short. Syria has been a focus um, of attention, first for Soviet policy and now for Russian policy. Syria was the only ally in the... Uh, Arab world that that would come to terms with with uh, with Russia. Egypt kicked 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 out the Soviet Union in 1956. Uh, the, all it was left was Syria, and it it was a weak country then, and it's a weak country now, if it's a country at all. Steve, maybe you could fill in some. Yeah,
2: more. no, there's a logic to that. I mean, in particularly that is the the Russian affinity towards Syria that goes back 50 years plus, and that to the Cold War. So whether you agree with it or not, that's why. There's economic ties between Syria and the Soviet Union, now Russia, cultural, even familial. I mean, there was an article in the New York Times, uh, maybe not three years ago, about the number of Soviet women, later Russian women, who, who married Syrian men and remained in Syria. And that, you know, Putin uh, made a big deal in Russian media about his you know, desire to protect these kinds of relationships. Um, in terms of the answer to your question, you know, I think, it you know, to maybe echo what I said initially, it goes back to, um, Putin's desire to be taken seriously, even if it's by you know, forcing others to accept him at, at, at a diplomatic table. That is, if if he does something in Syria and asserts himself in Syria, he's going to be at least put around a table uh, to discuss world affairs in ways that get at his primary desire to play a major role and have Russia play a major role in world affairs. Uh, that's true in North Korea too. You've probably heard that Russia wants to engage in diplomacy with, with North Korea. Uh, this is a way of you know, acting against that unipolar world that, that Putin railed against in 2007 in Munich. It breaks up, in effect, the Syrian intervention, that is the Russian intervention into Syria, broke what had been uh, an American monopoly of international, the use of international force. So this, this all gets at the big picture, that is Russia's desire to be taken seriously, to act seriously, uh, even if from the perspective of many Americans, it's Russia cozying up to pariah nations or to dictators.
1: So what, for example, is Russia's relationship to post-Soviet countries and other post-communist and still communist countries? Um, for example, those in Eastern Europe, the Balkans, or China?
3: Well, China is interesting. Of course, they border they border on Russia, and they're also a nuclear power. Um, they're the second largest economy in the world. And basically, uh, Russia can't exert much influence on China at all. China's the dominant country and that that partnership, for sure. And, and a lot of Russians recognize this, even though they don't like it. And Chinese power enters in strongly into Russia's relations with central Eurasian nations like Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and so on. Because those countries are beginning to establish their own relationships with China, often selling the Chinese gas or oil. And this, this is upsetting to Russia because here the Chinese are meddling in Russia's own backyard.
1: Steve?
2: Right. Certainly, China's the big player here now. And I will say, though, that if America retreats into isolationism and and kind of goes the American first, like the uh, getting out of the Paris Accord, uh, that's going to only further embolden China to take a bigger role in the world. And that might change the Russian-Chinese relationship even more, bring them at times closer together, maybe at times further apart. In terms of the other part of your question, I think it's fairly easy to answer. um, Russia's relation to post-Soviet countries, especially those in Eastern Europe, well, it's, it's not great. I mean, there's a reason why most of the Eastern European countries rush to join NATO, and many have rushed to join the EU, and they see that as a defense against a potential Russian threat. It is worth saying, however, that you know, Putin has kind of styled himself as a defender of traditional values, a true conservative, and that that attracts people, certain peoples across Europe. Um, and in terms of the former, uh, the countries in the former Soviet bloc, uh, he and Viktor Orban and Hungary have forged a kind of friendly relationship uh, around this idea of traditional historic values and conservative values.
3: Yeah, Russia is trying to use that lever of kind of nationalism, traditional values, uh, Russian Orthodoxy, uh, all of this. It's it's trying to use these soft power tools sure. to exert political influence in in Eastern Europe. But as far as I can tell, anyway, um, it doesn't seem to be leading anywhere because these countries. Well, are not- it's
2: why he has his Fed as Putin has his fans in America too, especially on the right and among. Right. Uh, Trump and uh, Trump's many of Trump's people. That is, he, they see him that's as right. a masculine, manly man who's defending uh, traditional values.
3: Yeah, that's right. And so this is this is an element of soft power, um, right. but it appeals to the right wing. And well, Hungary is a great example of that. Uh, Viktor Orban and and those people are not sort of the nicest folks that you'd wanna wanna run up against.
0: Well, as kind of closing thoughts, what are some of the most important factors to keep in mind when? dealing with Russia, is there anything specific that you think is important for today's foreign policy experts to take into account when working with Russia? Jerry?
3: Yeah, well, I'll go back to what I said before, my Internet Highway Act. <laughs> I think that's what we need to keep in mind. But we also uh, need to uh, understand that we do have things that we can do of a, const- with a, con- of a constructive nature. I would say maybe we must do with Russia to cooperate. There are elements of cooperation, or at least issues on which we can cooperate, such as nuclear non-proliferation. It's it's in the strong interest of both countries that we don't that nuclear weapons don't proliferate. Terrorism, both countries have a strong interest in that. I keep hoping that they'll find a common interest in re-regulating intermediate nuclear weapons. We have an agreement with them, but I'm concerned that both the U.S. and Russia seem to be moving towards stationing uh, these weapons back in Europe again. I really hope that doesn't happen. And so maybe we can come to an agreement there. But certainly the first two issues are things that we can work on right, right away.
0: Steve. Yeah,
2: I agree. I was going to say that I mean, Jerry's actually hit the two things in terms of ways that the the United States and Russia cooperate more That is nuclear proliferation or non-proliferation and terrorism. So I'll I'll maybe say two other things then. Um, One is in terms of understanding Russia, it's always uh, worth noting that back to the size and size mattering, it is a big country. It is still a very diverse country. And I think we, in the West, it's, it, it, we still fall back on the kind of Cold War-era tendency to view Russia solely through the prism of the Kremlin and the inhabitants of the Kremlin. And that's, that's far from the truth. It is understand that Russia is complex, complicated, big, diverse. Um, there's actually a wonderful comic artist in Russia named Victoria Lamasco who just had a collection of her comics published in America called The Other Russias. Uh, and that's a good metaphor. There are other Russias. There's other peoples. What's not reported well in the U.S., I think, or at least in mainstream media in the U.S., is the ongoing strikes among Russian truckers uh, who are quite angry at the Putin state for lack of payments, for lack of building of infrastructures, for political grievances as well. So these are stories that we ought to listen to. Uh, And then the second thing goes back to to deep history that I began with. And that's, again, you don't have to agree with it or apologize for it. But, you know, one of the, the things that drives Russian foreign policy today and has for a long time is the 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 grievance factor that is that Russians feel like they're not understood well by the West and that their history isn't understood well by their West. So we're on history talk here. Here's a a call (laughs) to understand their history well, uh, to understand that there is, uh, even if you don't agree with the way it's pitched in in Russia today, there's a, a deep thousand year history in Russia and at least a 500 year history of empire building and nation building. And one that to a certain degree, should be understood, should be studied, and should be brought to bear when you think about Russia today. That is, the Russian state today, uh, it's not just the communists still or the Soviets. It's, uh, it's Russia who see themselves, and Putin and his officials see themselves as the inheritors of this very long, deep history. Uh, and if, if we don't at least accept that or try to understand it, I think we're always going to get off on a bad foot.
1: All right. Thank you to our two panelists, Dr. Jerry Hudson, an associate at the Mershon Center, and Dr. Stephen Norris at Miami University. This episode of History Talk podcast was brought to you by Origins, Current Events, and Historic Perspective, an online publication of the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center, and the History Department at the Ohio State University in Columbus, and Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Our main editors are Steve Kahn and Nicholas Breifogel. Our executive producer is David Staley. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Kotheimer. And our audio producers and hosts are Brenna Miller and Jessica Blissett. Song and band information can be found on our website. You can find our podcasts and more on our website, origins.osu.edu, on iTunes and on SoundCloud. And as always, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook.